0: To bring the gospel to the boys and girls in the valley. Uh, A lot of them don't go to church anywhere and so in a lot of cases it's the first time they're hearing about Jesus. So we bring the gospel to them and uh, continue to disciple them all year long. We have a great curriculum. Uh, When we teach a Bible story it's not really just a Bible story it's a Bible lesson and the gospel is woven through each and every lesson that we teach. We also have scripture memory in our club, so the children are learning verses every week. Uh, We have a missionary story uh, that they get excited about and love to hear. And of course we play games and we have snacks and it's a lot of fun. Everybody is doing something. We have small group leaders. We have people in charge of uh, taking care of getting all the snacks and distributing them at club. Uh, We have a worship team leads the songs, um, we have people teaching the lessons, people teaching the memory verses. Every week at the close of the lesson, we offer an Im- invitation to the children, and um, at that time, we ask them if they would like to know more about receiving Jesus as their savior, or if they have any questions about all this. And so, uh, it's usually done by showing of hands, and, We usually have children that want to go out and ask questions.
1: Amen. Praise the Lord for our Good News Club. Amen. Our goal each week during this year as we consider moving forward is to highlight how the Lord is using us to move forward. The gospel, our neighbors, uh, the, the community, our hurting people that we know and our LVBC family. Um, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Exodus. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can take the pew Bible out in front of you and turn to page 45. You'll find our passage for this morning there. We are in an ongoing verse-by-verse study through this Old Testament book, and we now, in week two, are in chapter two. One of the oldest classic Bible trivia questions is this. How many of each animal did Moses take with him into the ark? And the answer to that question is obviously zero, because Moses didn't build the ark. Noah built the ark, right? But even though it was Noah with the animals in the ark, what we'll see in our passage today is that Moses was in an ark. It was a much smaller ark, and he was in it for a much shorter period of time, but he was in an ark nonetheless. Now, last week as we began our study through The book of Exodus, I gave to you some interpretive principles that are going to help guide us as we seek to understand all that God would teach us in this very old book. Uh, This is the grid through which we seek to understand the truths that are contained here. And the first principle is this, Exodus is a fulfillment of Genesis promises. And I told you last week that the book of Exodus begins with a conjunction. Why? Because it's a continuation of Genesis Old Testament promises in Genesis begin to find their fulfillment in the book of Exodus. So for instance, in the book of Genesis, God promised Abram, I will make of you a great nation. In the book of Exodus, it happened. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, God promised Abram that that your descendants will be in captivity for 400 years, then I will lead them out with great possessions. And in the book of Exodus, it happened. In the book of Genesis, Abraham was promised that the land that he was just camping out in, that he had just pitched a tent in, that one day it was going to be given to his descendants as an everlasting possession. And in the book of Exodus, we see it began to happen. The second interpretive principle for the book of Exodus is this. Exodus is the history of all God's people. Now, it is the history of the ancient Hebrew people in the far near east, but it's not only their history. You see, because Father Abraham had many sons, I am one of them and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. This is our history. If you're a covenant child of God, the book of Exodus is your history. But thirdly, and most importantly, Exodus is a story about one main person. If you were here last week, Bible students, who's the hero of the book of Exodus? Let's say it again. Jesus. Jesus is the central character of the book of Exodus. If you weren't here, you may say, hold on a second. Jesus wouldn't be born for another 1,500 years. How can he be the central character of the book of Exodus? Here's how the entire Bible's about Jesus. All 66 books point to Jesus. All 1,189 chapters are about Jesus, and chapter 2 of Exodus is certainly no different. And so as we approach each text, each week, we want to ask ourselves this question What does God want us to know about Jesus from this passage? And even deeper, What does God want us to know about the gospel of Jesus from this passage? And so with that as our interpretive grid, let's look at our focal passage this morning. Exodus chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. This is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a, dist- a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, "'She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. "'She took pity on him and said, "'This is one of the Hebrews' children. "'Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, "'Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women "'to nurse the child for you?' "'And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "'Go.' "'So the girl went and called the child's mother. "'And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "'Take this child away and nurse him for me, "'and I will give you your wages.' So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The title of my message this morning is Deliverer Delivered. And I'm talking about Moses, whom God would raise up to be the deliverer of the children of Israel. But what we see in this passage today is that the deliverer himself needed to be delivered. He first had to be delivered. And there are, in fact, six ways I want to point out that we see Moses, the deliverer, is delivered in this passage. Try saying that six times real fast. And so let's go get right to it. The first way we see the deliverer delivered is, number one, he was delivered through his birth. And it's important to note this. It's important to note that this little baby, we don't know his name yet when we're reading this at the beginning, but this little baby is born to a couple who are from the tribe of Levi, they are Levites. That's from the children of Israel. That's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So he is clearly a Hebrew baby. He was born and he survived. Now why is that significant? Well, if you were here last week, you know why this is significant. Because the last verse of chapter one, this was the edict, this was the command of the king, of Pharaoh. Look at chapter one, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Was little bitty baby Moses born to the Hebrews as a boy? Yes, he was. And so what was the command for Moses? To be thrown into the Nile River to drown and to die. This is genocide. This is ethnic cleansing on the part of Egypt's king. If it's a female, let her live. But if it's a male, he must die. So it can be said literally that the deliverer, was delivered by being delivered. (laughs) The fact that he was born and that he was kept alive. I mentioned last week that this really foretells what would happen to Jesus or what didn't happen to Jesus when Jesus was born and Herod, paranoid King Herod, heard a king was born. What did he order? That all the baby boys, two years old and younger, in Bethlehem must be killed. It's called the slaughter of the innocents and Mary and Joseph got out of town, and Jesus' life was preserved. The same thing happening here. All of the infant boys were ordered to be killed by this maniacal paranoid king named Pharaoh. Here's the second way in in which we see the deliverance of the deliverer. Number two, he was delivered through his beauty. This is interesting. In verse two, there is a particular and a very peculiar reason why his parents hid him after he was born. Look at what it says. And when she, that's his mother, saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. In other words, he was a good-looking baby. Now, I think that every parent thinks their child is a good-looking baby, right? When you first hold your firstborn child in your arms for the very, very first time, like me, you probably thought, how is it that God has chosen me to have the most beautiful child that's ever been born. When Amy and I were dating, I didn't know this at the time, but later she told me, shortly after we began dating, she knew immediately she wanted to marry me. And there were three distinct reasons why she wanted to marry me. Number one, I love Jesus. Number two, I made her laugh. And number three, we'd make pretty babies. (laughs) And it's true, our babies are pretty. Everybody thinks their babies are pretty. But guess what? In pretty baby contests, There are winners, and there are losers. (laughs) Not every baby's a pretty baby, but their baby was a pretty baby. And it wasn't a matter of parental or motherly bias. It's a matter of truth. Notice what the Bible says in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Why? Because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. So they look at their child. Now, I don't think before he was born, they had a conversation and said, hey, listen, if this baby is ugly, we're just going to chunk him in the river, right? I don't think they had that conversation. But they recognized when they held Moses for the very first time, they recognized there is something different about this child. There's something special about this baby And we've got to do whatever we've got to do to keep him alive because, again, the edict was if a Hebrew baby boy is born, and they didn't have sonograms. They didn't know it was going to be a boy. If a Hebrew baby boy is born, you are required to throw him in the river to be drowned. And so what seems to be happening is is that Moses' parents see he is special. Now, they had two children already. Miriam is the sister of... Aaron, an older brother. But again, they see something is unique and beautiful about this baby. Now, the fact that his parents hidden for three months brings forth, in my mind at least, a very perplexing question. And the question arises from the last phrase of that Hebrews 11:23, And they were not afraid of the king's edict. But it seems to me that if you were not afraid, I mean, parents who are not afraid, they parade their baby. They don't hide their baby. Why are they hiding the baby if they're not afraid? Well, I I think, for one, this is not a contradiction in the Bible. But listen, they don't hide the baby out of fear for their own lives. Again, they're risking their lives by not killing the baby. Because those who actually feared the king would kill their baby. But Moses' parents were not afraid for their own lives. In fact, I love the way John Piper illustrates this principle in two illustrations. He says this, following God's call to work with AIDS patients is an act of risk-taking faith, and wearing rubber gloves during treatments is an act of faithful wisdom. Following God's call to live in a rough neighborhood for for the purposes of evangelism is an act of risk-taking faith and buying deadbolts is an act of faithful wisdom. So Moses' parents have risk-taking faith. They're not afraid of the king's edict. They are not throwing their child in the river, but they hide him in an act of faithful wisdom. Jesus functioned in much the same way. You'll remember whenever Jesus would perform a miracle, provide a healing to someone, what would he tell the, the subject of his healing often? He would say, okay, don't you say anything. Don't go tell anybody. Why, was he afraid? No, Jesus wasn't afraid of anything. But he did not want to precipitate a premature crisis in Judea and have that happen before his hour had come. So seeing their baby's beauty, they hid him for three months. Here's the third way the deliverer was delivered. Number three, he was delivered in a boat. Now, some of you, when you saw the letter of the day was the letter B, you already wrote down basket. Gotcha, it's not basket, the word's boat, all right? (laughs) Here's why it's boat. It started out as a basket, but his mother turned it into a boat. She pitched it with bitumen and pitch. She made it seaworthy, if you will. That's waterproofing it. And so it became a boat, and Moses was delivered in a boat. Now, I want you to remember who the author of the book of Exodus is. The author of this account of Moses' birth is, in fact, Moses himself. And remember interpretive principle number one the book of Exodus is a fulfillment of Genesis promises, there's a conjunction, there's a joining together of these two Old Testament books. And it's interesting, this word that's translated basket in our English Bibles, this word is only used in one other location in the entire Old Testament and it's back in the chapters of six, seven, and eight of Genesis. What's those chapters about, anybody know? Noah and his ark. The same word that's translated Basket in Exodus chapter 2 is translated ark in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. This word is not used anywhere else in the Old Testament, and only Moses used it in his writings. And he uses it on two occasions to describe the basket he was rescued in and to describe the ark that Noah and his family were rescued in. Well, what does this mean? Hold on, I'm gonna tell you later. We're gonna get to it. But just know Moses was delivered, number three. In a boat. Here's the fourth way. The deliverer was delivered through benevolence. Through benevolence. Look at verses five and six again. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she, that would be Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket and she's intrigued. She's down at the riverbank with her royal entourage and she tells one of her servant girls, hey, go retrieve that basket. Bring it to me. She brings the basket to the princess and the princess opens the basket and what does she see? A crying baby. And she recognizes this is one of the Hebrews' boys. How does she know this? That it's a Hebrew child immediately. He's circumcised. Only Hebrew baby boys at the age of eight days old were circumcised. She looks at him and says, obviously this is a Hebrew boy, right? And what does she do? She takes pity on him. That word pity is often translated in our Bibles as compassion. Moses is delivered by the benevolent compassion of the one person in all of Egypt who could have delivered him. Pharaoh's daughter, And what we see happening in this event is the exact opposite of what's happening to all the Hebrew baby boys. There is no pity, there is no compassion for any of the other boys who are being chucked into the river. But there is compassion, there is pity for this one Hebrew baby boy. What's happening to all of Moses' kinfolk, all of the other baby boys, is the height of anti-Semitism. It's a systematic holocaust against the Jewish people. They're killing all of the Hebrew boys. I would ask a question particularly to the ladies. Ladies, what's your first impulse when you see a crying three-month-old baby? Pick it up. Comfort him, console him, hold him close to you and whenever that baby (laughs) settles down. There is an immediate bond created between you and that child, and that's exactly what happens here. Pharaoh's daughter picks up the crying baby Moses, holds him close to her chest. It's okay, little guy. We're going to take care of you. You're going to be okay, and he is comforted. Incredible. This is the compassionate benevolence of Pharaoh's daughter and you need to know these are not characters in a fictional novel these are real people this is a real event with true human emotion and feelings but next notice this fifth thing Moses was delivered through Miriam's brains (laughs) he was delivered through Miriam's brains now Miriam of course is the name of Moses's older sister we won't be introduced to her name until chapter 15 of Exodus but we know that's who she is She demonstrates the fact that she is quite astute. She is very quick-witted and is able to think and speak on her feet. Again, Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. And one of the things we see from Abraham and all his descendants throughout the book of Genesis, they are (laughs) quick-witted. They are able to think on their feet. They're able to fabricate some kind of tale or some type of story to get them out of a jam over and over and over again. Abraham did it. Isaac did it. Rachel did it. Rebecca did it. Jacob did it. Laban did it. Levi did it. Simeon did it. Joseph's brothers did it. Joseph himself did it. They're able to tell a story, to weave a tale, to get them out of a jam. They're quick witted. They're quick on their feet. They can think on their feet. Now, You have here this little girl she may be no older than 10 or 11 years old my sister Kathy my much older sister Kathy she's 11 years older than me after I was born she begged my mom please put his crib in my bedroom and she did so who woke up with me every time I started to cry my big 11 year old sister And she cared for me. She changed my divers. She got me dressed in the morning. She fed me the baby food. She took care of me. When mom was threatened to spank me when I was older, she picked me up and ran out of the room with me so I wouldn't get spanked. So if I'm a brat, it's my sister's fault, just so you know. (laughs) This is what eleven-year-old big sisters do. They're like a second mama to these babies. And so here's this big sister. And she's been given a very important assignment by her mother. I'm putting little baby in a basket in a boat in the Nile River. Watch and see what happens. You just watch out for little brother and you pay attention. So use your imagination with me. Here is Miriam. She's by the riverbank and she's acting like she's doing something, but she's got one eye on the basket. And all of a sudden, to her surprise, comes this royal entourage down from the palace. Where are they going? Where they're going close to the reeds, where Moses' little boat is. And who is that? Well, it's obviously somebody of nobility. it's, It's Pharaoh's daughter. It's the princess of Egypt. Oh, my goodness. And she's told one of her servants to go retrieve the basket. She's bringing the basket to herself. She's opening. She's holding my little baby brother. Somehow, I don't know how, this second mama to Moses keeps her composure. And she walks up to Pharaoh's daughter. She says, hey, what did you find there in that basket? Oh, that's a very lifelike looking doll. Oh, it's not a doll. That's a real baby. I am not a professional here, but it looks like he could use some lunch. Why don't one of you nurse the little baby? Oh, you can't. Here's an idea, no guarantees. Maybe I could go back to one of the Hebrew women and find one of them women who are lactating. I believe that's the first time I've ever used the word lactating in a sermon. Maybe I can find one of them who are lactating and bring that mother to you to nurse this baby for you. And the princess says, great idea, go do it. Now again, use your imagination. Miriam is walking away from the princess and walking home to her mother. We know her later, Jochebed. And Jochebed sees Miriam coming. Why is she coming home so soon? She should be watching the basket. She doesn't have the basket with her. She doesn't have her baby brother with her. What has happened to my child? Has the child died? Has the child drowned? Did the basket hold water? Did it sink to the bottom of the Nile River? She is in a panic. Miriam walks up, what are you doing? What's happening? It's okay, mom. He was picked up by all people. Pharaoh's daughter. And guess what? You have a job interview to be a wet nurse for your own child and get paid for it. That sounds like modern welfare system. The government pays you to take care of your own children. Oh, I won't even go there. But that's what's happening here. And so she goes and she takes the baby to nurse the baby. She, she probably, she couldn't run up and say, my job, my son. She had to keep her composure, too, as she took in her arms once again her son, her beautiful son, her special son, and fed and nursed the baby. Can you imagine how she felt? Unspeakable joy. Moses gets a lot of credit in the book of Exodus, but guess what? There would be no Moses without Miriam there would be no deliverance of the Hebrew people without a little 10-year-old girl who could think on her feet. Moses was delivered by Miriam's brains. But as true and as essential as all five of these points are, and I believe they are from the passage, this is still not the main point of the text. Because remember, the third interpretive principle, the third grid is How does this teach us about Jesus? And even more importantly, how does this teach us and what does this teach us about his gospel? Number six, the deliverer is ultimately delivered by the bigness of God. He's delivered by the bigness of God. It's obvious God is all over this account of what happens to Moses. Every single aspect of the deliverer being delivered is being carried out and orchestrated and planned and purposed by God. In fact, there are two main ways I want you to see. Number one, I want you to see that God has big sovereignty. God's got really big sovereignty. Did you know that God rules? That he rules over all? That all things happen under his providential authority? Care and according to his purpose, he rules, he reigns, and with incredible precision, timing, and accuracy, we see the big sovereignty of God in this passage. I mean, think about it. What are the chances? What are the chances that this basket would be in the close proximity to the bathwater where Pharaoh's daughter just happens to come down to take a dip? And what are the chances that she opens up that basket? And the very person who found this baby is someone who, one, had a heart of compassion, and number two is someone who actually could do something about it. You see, because all the other Egyptian women who may come down to the Nile River that day to take a bath in the Nile River, they could have found the basket too, but none of them would have legally been able to do anything about it. They would not have had the capacity, they would not have had the authority to rescue this Hebrew baby boy. They would have been required if they found a Hebrew boy to take it out of the basket and chuck it in the river. But not Pharaoh's daughter. She had the authority. If you go home this afternoon and in your backyard you look out the rear window and you see a cuddly, cute, little baby bear cub. You say, oh, how cute. How cute. I think I'll take it for a pet. No, 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 you can't do that. You're not authorized. I wouldn't advise it. There may be a mom around. But number two, you have to deliver it to the uh, wildlife people, right? Or it's got to go to the zoo. It's got to go back into the wild. You are not authorized to take a cuddly, cute little baby bear into your home. No other woman was authorized to take a cuddly, cute, beautiful child into their home. But Pharaoh's daughter was. So what do we have here? We have the right person in the right place with the right heart, with the right position, with the right credentials at just the right time. The big, big, big sovereignty of God. But I also want you to see the bigness of God in his big salvation. We see the bigness of God in his big salvation. Remember I told you that the interpretive clue for Exodus is that Jesus is the point of every single passage. The gospel is on display in every single chapter. So how do we see the gospel of Jesus here? Moses in a basket among the reeds in the Nile River taken out by Pharaoh's daughter is primarily a story about the gospel. The author of this book, I told you earlier, is Moses himself. And I told you earlier, he uses the same word for basket here that he does for ark in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. So he's wanting his readers, he's wanting us to make some kind of a connection. It's the only place this word is used. So what's the connection between the ark of Noah and the ark of Moses, the boat of Noah and the boat of Moses? You see, the ark of Noah, which was built built over a 100-year building project, it was built for the express purpose of preserving the godly seed of the woman while the rest of mankind was destroyed. To preserve the righteous godly line. Noah built an ark. Moses's mother built an ark. Noah pitched it so that it would be seaworthy and waterproof. Moses's mother pitched it so it would be seaworthy and Waterproof. Now, they vary in size. They vary in the duration of time they're in the water. But what they have in common is this. Those who inhabited the ark were rescued from destruction. Those and only those who were in the ark of safety were rescued from judgment. Think about it. The Nile River, for all intents and purposes was a means of execution. And the goal of Pharaoh, inspired by Satan, was to kill every Hebrew baby boy to wipe, out, to wipe out the righteous line from the seat of the woman. If all the boys were in fact killed, the Hebrew women would be forced to assimilate into Egyptian culture, the godly offspring of Abraham would be wiped out forever. But there's another promise in Exodus made to Abraham that finds its fulfillment start in the book of Exodus. I want you to see what it is. Look at Genesis chapter 26, verse four. The promise to Abraham is this, and in your, Abraham, your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now here's what's interesting. In English, we can't tell if the word offspring is singular or plural. In the Hebrew, we could tell, but I would say none of us in here could read the Hebrew, myself included. If only we had access to a Jewish Hebrew scholar with impeccable credentials who could tell us whether or not the word that God used to the promise to Abraham Was plural offspring all the many, 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 many children of Abraham? Or is it singular offspring? Oh, we do have access to one. His name is Saul of Tarsus. You know him as Paul the apostle. Notice what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3. He says this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Paul says it does not say and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is? Who is it? Christ. Who's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that through his singular offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed? Who is it? Christ. It's Jesus. You see Jesus in the Old Testament? In other words, Abraham, you're going to have so many children. They're going to be numbered as many as the stars in the sky. They're going to be numbered as many as the sand on the seashore. But all of their influence and impact it's not going to bless all the nations of the world. There's only one, a solitary descendant you will have in the days to come. Through him and him alone, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Who is it? Jesus. That's the promise. And so that's the promise. But guess what? Pharaoh's demonically inspired plan is to wipe out the 12 tribes of Israel, and that includes the tribe of Judah through whom the Messiah would come, and thereby Satan thought, I can destroy God's plan of bringing a Savior, one who's gonna step on my head and crush me. The Nile River is Pharaoh, is Satan's instrument of execution. It is, as such, a gas chamber for the Jews. It's a hangman's noose. It's a lethal injection. It's a guillotine. It's an electric chair. It's a means of execution. It's a Roman cross. It's a means to kill a Hebrew. Male descendant. And Moses is in that Nile River. He's in that execution chamber. But there's something very different about that baby in the Nile River from every other baby that's in the Nile River. Because that baby, Moses, is in the Nile River in an ark of salvation. You see, Noah's whole family was in the flood. They were in the waters. But there's something very different about Noah and his family and the rest of humankind. They were in the flood waters in an ark of salvation. And here's the point, friends. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. Here's something we're all going to have in common this week. We're all going to have the same weather. <laughs> You've been looking at it. We were wondering, are we going two inches, three inches, four inches of snow, ice on top of that, trapped in our homes? Guess what? We're all going to experience the same weather. Friends, when the floodwaters came, they all experienced the same weather. They all experienced the deluge of God's righteous wrath against the sinfulness of humanity. But there were some who were rescued because they were in the ark of salvation. The Bible says this in Hebrews nine twenty-seven. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Every single one of us has sinned. Look at your neighbor in front of you. Look at your neighbor behind you. To your left, to your right. Take out your phone and look at yourself in the camera. We're all sinners. We all deserve to die and we all deserve judgment. Every human that has ever existed will die. Every human that has ever existed will face the judgment of God. The only difference is on judgment day are you in the ark of safety? Are you in the ark of salvation? That ark was made foolproof by the blood of Jesus. That ark was made safe and sound so that when the fire falls, those who are in that ark, the judgment has already fallen on his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has already endured the flood of God's wrath. He's already fallen under the deluge of judgment. He's built a boat. He's built an ark of salvation, and the most important question for your life, have you gotten inside that ark? Are you in that boat? And there's a very important theological statement in this passage, and it's made by none other, the pagan, (laughs) idolatrous princess of Egypt. Notice verse 10 again, this further highlights the bigness of God. The word she chose to name her son, this is after he was with his mother, Jochebed, for three years probably, when he was finally weaned, gives him back to her. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The name Moses means pulled out. (laughs) Drawn out. Think about it. Jesus was submerged, All the way down into the flood of God's wrath. He was in the grave. He was dead. He was three days dead. But he was pulled out. In fact, I love the way the hymn writer put it. He says, Death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave he arose. With mighty triumph over his foes, he arose the victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Moses was delivered because he was pulled out from certain death. Jesus was delivered by being pulled out from actual death. You and I can be delivered by being resurrected from death to life by the very power of the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And here's the application. Again, you want to get in that basket. You need to be in that basket. You say, well, how do I do that? And here's the first thing, and this has been heavy on my heart this week as I've prayed through this message. There are people who see Jesus as a great addition. There are people who see Jesus as just a nice add-on Little compartment of my life. I want to incorporate him and in some of the Jesus stuff for good measure. And I would say to you this morning if you have never seen the desperate condition of your soul, if you have never come to grips with the weight of your own sinfulness and depravity and the very flood of judgment that that sin and depravity requires if you have never been shaken to your core about your lostness, then you're not ready to be a Christian. Friend, it wasn't until I saw how evil I really was and how sinful I really was and how gracious God was in providing an ark of safety in Jesus that I ran to Christ and surrendered to him as my Lord and trusted Jesus alone. If you come to that point, you will want nothing more than to be forgiven by him. You will want nothing more than to be rescued from your desperate condition. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And if God is working in your heart to be saved, maybe you thought you were, but maybe he is. And friend, you're going to become obsessed with your lost condition and you're gonna become obsessed with the grace of salvation found in Jesus and his sacrificial death in your place. If you need to get into Christ, into the ark of safety, friend, do it as fast and as vigorously as you can. Trust in Jesus. You may express to him something like this, Lord, I know I cannot save myself. My sin is ever before me. I am in a desperate condition, but I believe. I didn't used to believe. I was a liar. I was proud. I was insolent. I was a mocker. I was a scoffer. I was a blasphemer. I was a fornicator. But today, Jesus, I believe, and I want to be made right with you. I want to get into that ark of safety. I want to be rescued from the deluge of, of wrath that I have incurred. I have nothing to offer you, Jesus, but I believe 2,000 years ago you incurred the wrath I deserved for me in my place. And I want to be in Christ, in the ark of safety. And if that reflects your heart today, I'll be down here front or later after the service. Please come talk to me. But to close this message, I want us to read Romans chapter 6. Just the first four verses. After I first became a Christian, and I was saved from such a wretched sinfulness, as sinful as a 13-year-old boy could be, I was. And I memorized this passage in the King James, obviously, and I would lay in bed with my eyes closed, and I would quote this to myself because I wanted to live a holy life for Christ. I just want us to read it together. just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. My prayer is that we would walk out of here with that truth emblazoned on our souls. Are we to continue in sin? After we've been placed in the ark of safety? After we've been baptized into the deluge with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life? King James Version says, God forbid. God forbid. That leads to my last thought. Jesus died and was raised to provide deliverance to all who trust in him.